Welcome to a new episode of Film Seizure at the Movies. I'm Jeff Arbuckle, co-host of the Film Seizure podcast that you can catch each Wednesday morning with my cohorts Jason Oliver and Chuck Moore and my solo show Monster Mondays each Monday afternoon. You can catch both of those shows at FilmSeizure.com and actually during this summer you can catch episodes of the best of Film Seizure on Wednesdays and be sure to follow and subscribe to us at the various sites that I'll mention at the end of this episode so that you're ready for when new episodes of Film Seizure this September come along, when we will be tackling the Godfather trilogy, and also rest in peace James Caan, one of the uh, major forces of the first Godfather film. But this week I'm going to give a quick mid-year review of some of the best of the year that I've seen thus far, as well as tackling uh, the newest Marvel Studios blockbuster thor love and thunder and the first movie this week is thor love and thunder and i'm not exactly sure what to say here i'm a fan of the marvel studio stuff hell i grew up on marvel comics as a kid spider-man captain america the avengers and thor that's what i was most excited about each and every week as new issues hit the spinner rack at the drugstore less than 200 miles from the apartment that i lived in uh, it's impossible for me to objectively look at the Marvel movies. I mean, they all mean something to me. It's a lot like the James Bond films for me. I know some are better than others, with a very few from both of those franchises being legitimate works of art. But all of them are fun and likable, and damn it, I'll defend every single one of them. So if you listen to my review of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, you heard how much I utterly love the Avengers run by George Perez and Kurt Busiek. Um, they made me love the character, the Scarlet Witch. Uh, so when Perez died uh, the same weekend that Wanda was revealed as an incredibly dangerous bad guy, it made me feel things. It reminded me me of when she was revealed as a villain in a major milestone story of the series that laid bare the truth that the Avengers were never going to be the team uh, Buzek and uh, wrote and Perez drew. Now, if I were to go further back in time to when I was a little kid, Thor was my favorite hero. At the time I started reading comics, I was coming in on the tail end of the Walt Simonson run that lasted over 40 issues. I was able to go back and get most of those earlier issues in that run when I was a kid. His character work on Thor, Loki, Balder the Brave, Odin, uh, Hela, Sif, they were all just fantastic. His biggest contribution that is still around today was introducing the character of Beta Ray Bill. Bill was an alien that looked, I guess you could say, a lot like a horse. Uh, he was shockingly able to lift Thor's hammer Mjolnir. Uh, when he was virtuous and strong. He was shepherding the survivors of his race as they went spacefaring for survival. He was such a good guy that Odin made Bill his own hammer, Stormbreaker. Now, Beta Ray Bill up to this point had not yet appeared in a Thor movie, at least as a character. There was an Easter egg in the previous entry, Ragnarok, where we saw a statue of sorts uh, of his face. But anyway, Thor had power... He was a good guy, and the best part, he wasn't everyone else's favorite hero. So as I grew up, I became a bigger fan of Captain America for other reasons that were a little bit more under the surface of the characters, but Thor was always my first number one comic book hero. 
Now, Thor had a little bit of a comeback himself during the same time that Buziak and Perez was doing the Avengers run. However, the biggest thing to happen to Thor occurred sometime around 2014. During an event uh, that was being published by Marvel at the time, Thor lost the ability to lift Mjolnir. Uh, I don't exactly remember the exact secret that causes him to lose that ability, but that hammer was eventually lifted by a new wielder taking on the name of the mighty Thor, but it was a woman. In time, we discover that the person who decided uh, the world could not go without a Thor was his longtime love interest, Jane Foster. Now, Jane had gone through some disasters. Her ex-husband and their son died in a car accident. Um, then she was diagnosed with cancer, and her strength and her general kindness gave her the virtues needed to lift the hammer, and she took over the role. But there was a catch, though, and it's a heartbreaking one. Every time that she transformed into the mighty Thor, the power and energy crackling through her body would reverse the chemotherapy she was receiving to treat her cancer. Even though she was strong and healthy as Thor, she couldn't stay that way, and being Thor was literally killing her. And that was a compelling story that uh, put a really neat twist on that series. While the original Thor at that time going by Odinson, uh, was still around and everything built to a wonderfully emotional uh, conclusion where the original Odinson regained the mantle of Thor while Jane Foster would focus on getting healthy. It was good stuff. It was compelling. And you worried that Jane wasn't going to make it. And I wanted to tell that backstory because of two reasons. Between Thor Ragnarok, uh, Avengers in Infinity War, and Avengers um in game thor was as a character is one of the most fun to watch in the entire mcu and as we go into thor love and thunder it's interesting to try to sort out exactly what thor is as a character in these movies here's the thing every time you try to make thor a regular old action adventure superhero character it comes up kind of flat if you try to make Thor into a straight-laced god thing that wields a powerful hammer and acts and talks like a Viking, it, well, it kind of crosses a line in your brain that then struggles with how to deal with this being in a movie where we just watched Iron Man do more typical action hero things in a much more typical real world. So the one thing that I think these three movies that I mentioned previously, Ragnarok, Infinity War, Endgame, did that I think really works and is only escalated here in Love and Thunder is to basically make Thor a more comedic and, uh, and kind of this frat boy doofus. And it kind of makes sense. There will be inherent problems with that kind of move. But let's face it, if Thor acted like, say, Captain America in any one of these movies, he's instantly overpowered and there would be no way to have Thor kind of do movies on his own. So what do I mean by that? Well, he's the literal god of thunder in the Marvel Universe. His comics would often delve into cosmically weird stuff. That's what you have to do with him. The moment he lands on Earth to join the battle against whatever monster, you're kind of thinking he's going to turn the tide into the to his own favor or the Avengers' favor. 
It's like when Superman shows up to fight a group of bank robbers. I'm going to think that Superman is going to be pretty fine in that situation. You need Superman to go up against Lex Luthor in a goofy green robot suit or Brainiac or some other type of super alien uh, to kind of come in and even the, the playing field. But what I'm getting at is that you level that playing field for these types of characters that are insanely powerful. For Thor, they... tried some of the more weirdo stuff from his comics in the first two movies with the destroyer robot that is in the comics usually powered by somebody's soul that's a weird thing in the sequel thor dark world it's about this heavy lore with dark elves and this cosmic power thing that we do eventually find out leads towards the infinity war and endgame stuff but still these are heavy lore ideas and a literal space viking walking about it wasn't really striking much of a chord with fans of the iron man and captain america types so those guys are grounded on earth while thor is dealing with all sorts of difficult to pronounce realms within norse mythology so what if we turn him into this kind of comedy character he's a little less serious that could that would deaden the overpowered nature of what he is a little bit. While that brings about its own issues as a character and film tone, um, it started resonating more with moviegoers. You can bring a little bit more of that ethos into the character while he's also being a big oaf with a hammer. Um, You could have him mope about because he didn't actually kill the big bad Thanos. You could have him take the loss at the infinite at the end of Infinity War really hard, but at the heart of this character is a good guy that you kind of want to be buddies with, at least very likely that you'd want to be buddies with. So right out of the gate, let me just say that you might expect some of that uh, giant preamble that I had uh, that I, you know, you could probably figure out from all of that, that I do like Thor Love and Thunder on principle it's a fun two hours there are lots of laughs and there are some really pretty exciting scenes particularly between chris hemsworth's uh thor and christian bale's gore the god butcher bale like he can do so often really disappears into this role um that's is kind of another horror type of character kind of like the scarlet witch was in the doctor strange movie a couple of months back um let's actually talk about the god butcher here for a second again on balance i like the idea of the character here's this guy who lives on a desert planet who put his entire life into believing that his gods were looking out for him and his kind then as he begs for someone that will save his dying daughter on a planet that has no more food and no more water uh, they don't really care about the plight of a single mortal on a dying world. In fact, uh, he does end up meeting his religious uh, god figure, and he's basically like, oh, yeah, no, we're, you know, this is all part of a calling anyway, and we're just going to remake this world. So, you know, there's, and that's kind of interesting, and there's a little bit of sympathy there. So he, you know, he ends up with this sword that is fabled to be able to kill gods um he uses it and starts slicing down gods all over the universe that's kind of neat um so okay yeah i like that character from the comics uh there was some really great stuff during that run in the marvel comics but 
um, one of the some of the stuff that he can do is that he can summon monsters from shadows. And I like monsters. Um, that was all very cool. But the sequence I liked most by far in this movie was when Thor, uh, his buddy, uh, the the rock creature Korg, that is voiced by uh, Taika Waititi, um, Jane Foster as the new mighty Thor, and Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie go to the shadow realm way out in the cosmos somewhere that is so dark that it sucks the color out of things it transitions into this cool black and white sequence where only vague washes of color are ever seen Um, it's a really pretty well designed sequence and kind of different for a marvel movie to kind of get into that playing around with color in that way now there is one elephant in the room with this movie that i should address and that's the overall jokey tone of the film. Honestly, the last two Thor movies since um, or between this one and the previous one that were uh, directed by Taika Waititi, um, you know, they really are action comedies. There are some serious things happening, but generally, at least in this movie, um, you really get this kind of overall extremely light tone. And I think this movie is fine in doing so. And again, Thor is such a fantastical character and has to deal with such wildly crazy things. It's okay for him to crack jokes and have a running gag with two giant goats that he's, (laughs) that he was gifted that uh, can only fly or can, can, you know, not only fly, but they also scream constantly. Those things cracked me up every time those goats showed up and they're just screaming like like they're just an existential dread. But, you know, I'm fine with all of that. But I know that this will not go over all that well with a lot of others. They'll look past the fact that there's no real way of having a straight laced Thor movie and critique the kind of lowest common denominator style comedy that gets theaters laughing at some pretty silly things. I'd argue that this movie uh, actually knows when to be funny and when to take it serious. Um, there are some pretty s- serious things that happened in this movie and that there really aren't any jokes oddly thrown in when something kind of heartfelt or very serious is happening. Now there are some serious things in this movie and, um, you know, what is good at making sure that there's not really a mood killing cheap laugh mixed in all the time. Um, if there is one little knock that I will give this movie is that eh, a couple of times, it almost feels like some scenes went a little too long when characters are trying to riff back and forth. Um, it sometimes felt a little improv and that can really hurt the laughs. Um, it was almost like there were times they didn't expect the lines written to be funny enough without a little extra or they felt they needed a joke but couldn't figure out one to actually write for the movies or at least for the scene that said personally i do like this movie i think it is kind of one of those perfect summer movie action comedy types that hasn't really been done all that well for a really really long time um it feels like a movie that would have been perfect for audiences in the early to mid nineties. The guns and roses soundtrack really helps with that feel too. This movie isn't trying to be a great piece of art and aspire to even some of the heights of other Marvel movies, but this movie wants to make you laugh and wants to give you a good time. So what could possibly be wrong with that? And to those who might have a list of reasons of what's wrong with that, 
I have to ask if you expected Shakespeare or something from a Werner Herzog or something. Um, this is about a guy who is named Thor. He carries interchangeably a hammer and a battle axe, and he hangs out with superheroes in bright, flashy outfits. Methinks you might need to reset your expectations. But now before uh, we close up shop for this episode, I do want to give a rundown of what movies I do think at least through the first half of this year, really caught my eye and vying for spots in my best of 2022 list. I've already mentioned movies like Watcher X, The Batman, and Elvis on this show, and how much I really enjoyed what they brought. Elvis is a rip-roaring musical kind of biopic. Um, you know, and uh, Austin Butler is a star on the rise for much bigger and greater things in movies. The Batman is another genre-defining movie for the Caped Crusader. It's possible to put those types of characters in serious movies that deal with serious topics that lead to crime and, you know, and corruption in a city. If anything, I think Joker probably led the way here for the Batman to be made in this kind of dark um, and, you know, kind of be this serious and almost realistic while still providing a great deal of entertainment. As for Watcher and X, these are very good horror movies with great leading ladies that prove that the old style thrillers and horrors can still be made. And speaking of, the more I think about the black phone, the more I think about how great and intense the movie really was. Ethan Hawke was fantastic, but I really didn't mention the two child acts, actors, uh, Mason Thames and uh, Madeline McGraw, as the siblings who are standing right up to the adults in this extremely tough and dark movie by Scott Derrickson. I'm not saying that it necessarily deserves this kind of recognition, but The Black Phone is one of those movies that this upcoming January or February, if we found out that it got nominated for Best Picture and or a Best Screenplay Oscar... I would nod and say that that sounds about right. It really does harken back to those serious thrillers like Silence of the Lambs. Now, another movie that the more I think about, the more I like is Beavis and Butthead Do the Universe. It's easily the funniest movie I've seen in some time. There are scenes of absolute perfect satire in it. Um, the the whole scene of the pair learning about white, uh, about privilege, about white privilege and male privilege and then just not misconstruing the le the lesson but then actually acting on it is fantastically funny just opening with beavis being kicked in the nuts over and over and over is hilarious it feels so good to have that pair back and it not feeling like it's out of place or making you feel kind of bad for wanting to laugh at you know at something very much uh beavis and butthead but knowing that it's okay even in this climate that we're in it's uh it's really you know it's it's a very well done movie and a very well done uh script comedic script i've already dedicated a whole episode and some of this episode to how much dr strange weighs on my mind with it coming out right with the passing of george perez i don't think i need to say much more about it uh does it deserve to be ranked as high as it probably will be on my list no. Should I consider it somewhat special for every reason I've already gone on record with? Absolutely. But really, this leaves us with three 
exceptional shining stars of the year thus far. One I've talked about on the show is Top Gun Maverick. For a sequel that's 36 years after its original, it is not only fresh and interesting, but it also has a great deal of heart in the exact right place and has stunning visuals and breathtaking action scenes. Uh, it should be the year's number one grossing movie. I can't, um, I can't imagine even the upcoming Avatar sequel uh, that I do have absolutely zero interest in will even compare to Maverick. Right now, there are two movies sitting atop my list that I've not done reviews for. And the first is the 2022 surprise of the year for me, uh, Riley Stern's Duel, starring Karen Gillan. This peculiar little movie is about a woman who finds out that she has a terminal disease. She decides to clone herself to replace her uh, once she dies. So she doesn't really have to, you know, tell her doting mother about her disease or about, you know, that's the fact that she's going to die. However, a bump in the road comes when that terminal disease is no longer terminal. Under constitutional law in this world, there cannot be an original and a clone living at the same time. They must duel to the death. And I personally like this almost alien style of communication that Stearns' characters have. Uh, it creates a, a different type of comedy that is so deadpan. It, it almost killed me in that seat that I was sitting in at the theater. But I saw this movie kind of on a whim after seeing it listed playing at my local amc theater and i'm really glad i did it's one of those movies like sexy beast a couple of decades ago that i will go to bat for for the rest of my life now number one currently is the movie a lot of people have talked about this year the very impressive and surprisingly funny and endearing everything everywhere all at once directed by the daniels daniel kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Uh, one of the great things about this movie isn't how it handles multiversal concepts, but how it focuses specifically on the relationships between mothers and daughters, and probably more accurately, Asian mothers and daughters. Um, but I find that to be, at least I think, so easily relatable to anyone and told so plainly and so in your face that you just understand the dynamic between these two women. Michelle Yeoh really needs an Oscar nomination for this. She's perfect in this movie with her many different versions, one of which she's the biggest female action star in the world. And yes, I immediately thought about her role in Tomorrow Never Dies, the Bond movie in which I've always said she deserved much, much better than uh, her daughter is played by uh, Stephanie Shu. And uh, here's another role that I just love watching. Yeah, she's the villain. She's the big threat. But you understand her anger and frustration at her mother, at the immense pressure that was heaped upon her as a, a daughter um, of you know, Chinese descent. And uh, it's just a wonderful movie. It's hard to see what will dislodge this movie from the top spot on my list during, uh, at least during the stage of, you know, later in the year, at least the, the second half of the year. But you know what? There's still six more months of movies to go, and I'm sure there will be some movies on the horizon that will attempt to knock that movie off its pedestal. 
All right, so don't forget to follow Film Seizure at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram so that you can be made aware of new episodes of our various shows as they drop. You can also follow us at podcast providers like SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and Audible. You can also listen to to the show on YouTube by subscribing there. Now, I am going to take a little time off from doing these recent release reviews. I'm still going to see movies, and if some hit my fancy to the point that I feel like I need to talk about them, I will. But I'm going to take a tiny bit of a break. Um, Instead... Let me tell you that you can catch Monster Mondays every Monday afternoon and you can listen to the best of Film Seizure each Wednesday until we return with our new episodes in September. So until then, don't forget to save me the aisle seat. <laughs>